And good evening, everyone, and welcome to the other side of midnight, that magical time be between dusk and dawn where anything can happen, and on this show, many times it does. We're in our second night of our anniversary weekend of the Apollo 11 landing 50 years ago last night. They spent, as I said last night, about 24 hours on the moon looking back at the records, the archives, the, the NASA material. And this afternoon, I actually was able to listen briefly to the CBS replay of our broadcast from 50 years ago when Neil and Buzz left the moon. And it was, it was so eerie because, it, it, you know, I, I kept kind of falling back in time and it was like it was happening now. It's like it was current. It's like, you know, you even though I knew they'd safely made it back and 50 years ago all this had taken place, it's like I was in a time machine watching this in real time, reliving what I lived at the time, hoping to God that, you know, ascent engine when they, you know, hit that circuit breaker would actually fire. I mean, that was one of the major, you know, uh, situations. NASA has always tried to work systems so there's, you know, in the famous adage, no single point failure. Well, in the Apollo system, there were two single point failures. One was the uh, SPS engine. That was the big Bell engine on the back of the service module that had to fire. It's a 26,000 pound thrust engine, I think. It was hypergolic fuels, meaning you mix them together in the in the chamber and they light up and burn and produce thrust. That was a single point failure. There was no backup engine. There was no backup way to slow down or accelerate out of lunar orbit. So if that engine failed in terms of, of leaving the moon orbit for the command module, uh, they would be stuck in lunar orbit until uh, they, they basically crashed. The other single point failure was the ascent engine on the lunar module. Remember, the lunar module came as a spacecraft with two parts, a descent stage and an ascent stage, obviously bolted together. And you landed everything, and then to leave the moon, you fired electronic bolts, you know, which cut cables and physical connections to the descent stage, and the ascent engine lit up and fired the ascent stage back into orbit carrying the two astronauts, and all that came down to that engine, which was made as simple, as simple, as simple as possible, so as few things could go wrong as could go wrong, but listening to this rebroadcast, it was like I was there 50 years ago, crossing our fingers, listening to the air to ground, to the static, to the noise, to the second and a half time delay between Houston and the moon. I mean, it was, CBS did an incredible job of just replaying history the way we all lived it 50 years ago last night and 50 years ago this afternoon. So before we swing into the show, and I'm going to you know, kind of give you a rundown of what's going to happen. Um, first hour, I'm going to finish the presentation of these amazing images from Apollo showing that we are not the first on the moon and not the second or not the third, or I mean, I've lost track now of how many separate sets of ruins and potential ancient civilizations we have tabulated over the years. And if to some people that sounds surprising or shocking or stupid, uh, it's because you haven't seen the data. Well, tonight you're going to see uh, the rest of that data. And then we're going to bring on our guest beginning at the top of the second hour. 
and we have a very interesting lineup, which I will go through when we uh, when we get there. In the meantime, I have a couple of news item links at the top of the page. If you go to, and you're going to have to do this all night, so I'm going to go through the drill. Go to the other side of midnight.com. That's our website. That's our homepage. Click on tonight's banner for Sunday, uh, July 21st. All right, which says. You know, in brilliant letters, Apollo 50, next giant leap, what NASA has been hiding for over 50 years about the moon, part two. Click on that. That will take you to tonight's guest page and scroll down and you will see right under um, that banner, you'll see a line which says fast links to items news. Hoagland, Hoagland 2, Hoagland 3, Hoagland 4, Sunday, Hoagland 5, Hoagland 6. And then a list of uh, guests for tonight for later on. What you want to do is you want to click on when I tell you Hoagland 5, because that's tonight's page for Sunday night showing these images, which um, are going to be very important for you to keep track of. Anyway, back to the news items. Um, the first item, if you scroll further down in that, in that page, it's 2019. Why haven't humans gone back to the moon since Apollo missions? Well, that's a very interesting analysis having to do with the politics of the Cold War, the kind of consecutive coming together of Soviet Union and U.S. Uh, geopolitical machinations, uh, what Kennedy had run on, the idea that he was somewhat of a hawk against communism, and he was looking for ways to demonstrate that we uh, – we uh, were, you know, had supremacy in terms of political systems. It was basically democracy, you know, the Constitution against communism, totalitarianism, you know, the way Russians used to live in the old Soviet Union, which was uh, a bug under every carpet and one car for every thousand people, something like that. All that, of course, has changed in the last 50 years. And so this is a very interesting analysis of why the, the geopolitical chemistry to recreate what was going on then to create Apollo probably is not in the cards unless there's something that we're not aware of. And of course, what I'm arguing is that what you're going to see tonight in the way of the completion of my presentation of the data we've analyzed now, what's really on the moon, that presents the game changer. If this president, in pursuance of his goal, you know, we're talking about Donald Trump now, if he really wants to get NASA and the American people uh, and the first woman astronaut back to the moon in 2024 by the end of his second term, he's going to have to pull a rabbit out of a hat. He's going to have to do something really, really different, like maybe tell the world and the American people the truth about what's on the moon, which, of course, takes us to our presidential briefing, which is at the very top of the page. If you want to see what we were able to present through a backdoor channel directly to the president of the United States, Go to the top of the, the guest page or the home page, click on that banner for the presidential briefing, take a look at the trailer, and then buy the damn thing. Because <laughs> that way you will be up to speed, and it isn't that much. It's $19.50, which I think is kind of appropriate in, in the sense of what we're trying to accomplish here. Okay, second news item tonight. Let's keep scrolling down. This is a very interesting Time Magazine analysis of where the future of the NASA effort and the American space program and all the other global space programs are going. 
and the rate at which they are going. I mean, it's really, I mean, this is almost like a, a chapter out of Robert Heinlein's really incredible classic uh, back in the 1940s, made into the first serious movie about space exploration called Destination Moon, which was, if you ever have seen that movie, and I strongly recommend you look at it, it wasn't the government in Robert Heinlein's conservative, almost libertarian perspectives. In fact, he really was a libertarian. It was private enterprise. It was industrialists. It was millionaires. I mean, think of it. Back then, a millionaire was the equivalent of Elon Musk today. So there were Elon Musk types, one in particular, and a team of industrialists using good old American know-how, expertise, you know, putting the resources together privately that created the first private mission to the moon. And that was the first mission of humankind in Robert's novel and then in his uh, film that he uh, uh, worked as a technical consultant on, along with Chesley Bonstell and a bunch of other very interesting folks that we'll talk about at some other time. But what's interesting now, historically, is that we've kind of inverted that equation. We went for political reasons to the moon, a la the government. Huge, big effort. $20, million, $20, million, $20 billion in 1969 dollars, like 240-some billion in 2019 dollars. Um, and, of course, going back to the moon is going to cost roughly the equivalent. But is the political will there? Do people really want to see us again doing things on the moon? Well, Heinlein's answer was you don't need people if you have industrialists. People want to make money. So what do we have in the modern era? We've got Elon Musk who thinks and is saying and is kind of proposing rather aggressively that he's going to be able to take tourists to the moon starting with his giant spaceship called the Starship rocket in 2023. Meaning that if he stays on track, remember, this is a guy who's done impossible technical things before. If he stays on track, he'll be able to pull off what uh, NASA still cannot do. And people, of course, look at all that and say, well, they can't do it now because they never did it then, which brings up the whole hoax thing. We're going to talk about in the rest of the show tonight, second and third hours, particularly the third hour, the idea of this hoax that we never went, that we never did any of this stuff. You know, I was listening and kind of thinking about that this afternoon as you listen to the meticulous, incredibly complicated, you know, worldwide network of people required to make Apollo, you know, happen. And the critics now are saying, the folks who, you know, claim we never went and did all this, well, we never went and did all this because it all worked perfectly. What they don't know is the heart-stopping things behind the scenes that almost prevented those two guys from coming home successfully after being on the surface of the moon. Something as stupidly simple, uh, and I think that story's been out there for some time, as when they were getting ready to do the first EVA, uh, Neil's backpack, the big PLIS unit, the portable life support system on the back of the spacesuit, as he moved around in this little tiny lunar module cockpit, it hit a switch and knocked the switch cover off and the plastic thingy on top of the switch that you had to push in to initiate the ascent engine. Without that switch, they could not have left. They couldn't have made the engine fire. It literally was that critical. It was another one of those single point failures. So what did Aldrin do? He 
actually remembered that they had a ballpoint, they had a bunch of ballpoint pens, and he took the cap off and he put it in the switch position so he could push down on the plastic cap of the ballpoint pen and initiate the firing sequence to light up the ascent engine so they could leave the moon. I mean, stupid stuff like that, incredibly stupid, trivial stuff could have killed two brave Americans um, earlier this afternoon, 50 years ago. Okay, without further ado, I want everyone now to click on Hoagland 5, which is right under our news links. Just scroll down a little bit further. You go past where it says Return to Main Sat Show page, Return to Main Sun Show page, and then in orange, nice bright orange, it says Fast Links to Items, and then you're going to want to click on Hoagland 5 because that takes you to tonight's page where you're going to see the, the rest of these astonishing images. Okay, so let me do a couple things here. One is take a drink of water. It's very dry here in this desert tonight. We've had temperatures almost 100 degrees. It's still, when I look at my thermometer outside the window, it is 80 degrees here. And it is uh, uh, almost 15 minutes after 10 o'clock local time. Anyway, reprising last night. I demonstrated with a series of images on this 50th anniversary weekend that the moon we think we know is not the moon that really exists. If you look, for instance, at image number three, click on image number three. That's a side-by-side comparison of a NASA headquarters version of an Apollo 14 frame. And on the right-hand side, is this composite, is, a, is an enhanced uh, view of the same frame that came from Ken Johnston's secret stash that he loaned to me many, many years ago, back in 1995, after we met at a conference in Seattle. Remember, Ken was the head of photographic uh, services at the Lunar Receiving Lab. Uh, we'll get his precise title when he comes on in the next uh, uh, couple hours. And he was instructed, as I told you last night, to destroy all but one set of images in the Lunar Receiving Laboratory. And his good sense kind of took over, and he thought there was something kind of funny about it. So he's going to tell us that whole story anyway in the first person. But he saved, apart from the images that he did destroy, a full set, one to send to a university, the other he kept in his own archives. And it was from that archive that he was able to provide me scannable copies of uh, images that are stunning because – If you look at number three, click on number three and look at that image, that is structure. That's geometric glass glittering ruins in incredible degraded form now, having been bombarded by micrometeorites for untold millions of years, but proving that in addition to unusual artifacts on the surface of the moon itself, there were unusual things sticking up above the surface to an estimated altitude of more than 10 miles. Which brings us to image number four. This is a uh, Hasselblad image taken out the window of the uh, lunar module on Apollo 10, the mission that preceded Apollo 11, kind of the rehearsal except for the landing. And the astronauts, you know, performed all the functions. They separated the lunar module. They went down to 50,000 feet they came back up. They rendezvoused with the command module. They did all the things they would do during the Apollo 11 mission, which followed a couple of months later, 
because Apolitan was in May of twenty uh, of, of uh, 1969, and of course uh, Apollo 11 was in July. So there wasn't a lot of time between those two missions to absorb the details, the knowledge base that had been gained from the kind of um, a preview or practice run uh, on Apollo 10. But what they did do that the Apollo 11 did not do in, in some measure was to take some extraordinary imagery of the front surface of the moon as they crossed over um, you know, from the limb on the right to the limb on the left every two hours in lunar orbit. And so you see there an image 4810, and then below it, number five, is an, is an enhancement of 4810, and click on that. Because when you do, you're going to have opened up for you a panoply of astonishing things that should not exist above the moon. There is this incredible three-dimensional geometry of actual structures above the surface, somehow suspended. And if you look carefully, you can see that the structure crosses in front of the surface details that are, you know, at least 10 to 15 miles uh, beneath the orbit of the lunar module, which means when, um, um, you know, the Gene Cernan said on Apollo 10, uh, we're really down among them. This, I believe, is what he meant. They were down amid the structure of what's sticking up above the moon. And, of course, you're going to ask yourself the obvious question, how can a spacecraft moving at several thousand miles an hour go through stuff like that and survive? The answer is, after millions of years of meteorite erosion, it has the consistency of cigarette smoke or of a very, very depleted atmosphere like 100 miles above the Earth. The spacecraft essentially didn't even feel it. Now, I know that sounds extraordinary, and there are ways we can test that going forward in the next couple, three years. We have some plans for actually doing tests in lunar orbit. We'll get to those you know, later. To actually physically sample what is there sticking up above the moon in what I call the lunar-wide, all-encompassing lunar dome. Think of the moon as wrapped in saran wrap. The entire moon, ball of the moon, sphere of the moon, is wrapped in saran wrap. But it's very, very, very fine and perforated and almost non-existent saran wrap because it's trillions and trillions and trillions of particles that are now refracting sunlight individually, almost of molecular size. But they really don't amount to a density that will destroy a spacecraft moving through them at several thousand miles per hour. Remember, the orbital velocity for the moon, unlike the Earth, is much, much lower. It's more akin to a high uh, you know, performance aircraft on Earth, a few thousand miles an hour for a supersonic uh, you know, stealth bomber or stealth fighter, whatever. Anyway, if you now go back out of that and you click on number... Um, the, the, the third of the sequence, and I made a mistake. Oh, here we are. Okay, okay. We are okay. Last night I was kind of frozen out of our own website because of the amount of traffic that uh, accumulates. Um, I won't make that mistake again. So if you scroll down beneath that second image and click on the third image in the sequence, this will take you to the, uh, to the uh, kind of close-up enhancement that I've done of some of this marvelous, incredible geometry. I mean, this geometry is just so amazing 
because you can actually see that it's three-dimensional. It's got crossbars. It's got spars. It's got um, uh, you know technology that has obviously been above the moon for a very, very long time. And it, it, it just shows you what you can see if you take these official NASA images. And what I would do is I would order actual hard copy prints from various NASA centers, each of which had its own archive of Apollo imagery. And I would um, uh, basically look at the same frames from the Houston archive, from the Goddard archive, from the JPL archive, from NASA headquarters. They had an archive. And I would compare the details on these various prints so that we could actually see what it was that, um, that was on these images. All right, item number seven, uh, following six, is just an, an, a closer enhancement of the 3D geometry. So looking at all of this geometry and the fact that it had to be glass in order to refract light in the way it's refracting light, and so you can see through it. When you see it crossing in front of the structures on the moon, miles below the spacecraft, uh, you can see right through it. That means that it can't be optically dense or obscuring. It has to be transparent or semi-transparent or have certain refractive properties, which actually I've seen in some of the imagery if you look at the stuff at the um, key angle. So I'm constantly thinking in terms of science, how can we test this idea? How can we subject this extraordinary, off-the-wall, insane proposition that the moon is covered with some kind of structure all over a combined surface area equivalent to the land area of North and South America combined, millions of square miles. Obviously, this is not being done by, uh, you know, the folks who put up skyscrapers in New York several, you know, decades ago, almost a century ago. This is some super high-tech technology, which has long since disappeared from the solar system, wielded by folks who... Uh, probably would be thought of in ancient times as gods because they could do extraordinary technological feats. Probably it will. You know, any sufficiently advanced technology, as my friend Arthur used to say, is indistinguishable from magic. So we're looking at essentially magical type two hyperdimensional technology. So I got to thinking, well, if this stuff is refracting light, it must be differentially refracting light. Now, what do I mean by differentially? Well, what I mean is that um, it bends red light, longer wavelengths, more than it bends blue light, shorter wavelengths. In other words, each of these incredibly tiny cigarette smoke-sized particles of glass, if glass is in fact what they are, has to be acting like a prism, which means in color imagery, we should see evidence of this type of structure because of telltale prismatic signatures. Again, if this was real. So I started looking through the Apollo archive for imagery that had been taken properly and not by the way, JPEG to uh, Helen gone because most of what NASA used to put up on their websites was JPEG so severely that you couldn't, you couldn't see anything. There were too many, you know, JPEG artifacts compared to the real data. That, of course, I think was being done deliberately because if you can't see the data, you can't reach conclusions. But finally, I noticed in one archive that NASA was replacing beginning several years ago the crummy versions of these Apollo frames 
with the um, uh, much higher resolution version of these frames. And that, of course, is what uh, I, I was looking for. And since we're at the bottom of the hour and um, we're kind of leaving you on a, a kind of a, uh, a cliffhanger here, we will pick all this up on the other side. Isn't that kind of a nice reiteration? So why is I'm why am I not hearing something? Okay, uh, we're having weird technical issues tonight. Okay, there we are. So we shall return with this, pick up this story because I looked for prisms, and when we come back, I'll tell you what I found. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland, and we shall return. midnight.com Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcaster to provide you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. 
theothersideofmidnight.com. Welcome back to the other side of midnight for this Sunday night, July 21st, 2019. 50 years to the day since two American astronauts left the moon successfully, returned to lunar orbit, rendezvoused successfully with Mike Collins, and jettisoned the LEM, which was then directed to impact the uh, lunar surface so that it could provide a um, seismographic test. Because remember, in the ALSA package, the Apollo Lunar Science package that the astronauts, the first astronauts from Earth in modern era, left upon the moon, there was a seismograph to measure moonquakes. And oh, thereby hangs a tail. Anyway, the idea was that since the ascent stage of the lunar module basically had no function after successfully getting the two astronauts on the surface back to uh, join Mike Collins in the command module, orbiting above the moon every two hours. When they jettisoned the lunar module, they, they set up the computer so that it would burn the engines and deorbit and impact back on the moon at several thousand miles per hour. That would generate the equivalency of several tons. I think it was like 100 tons or so of TNT, which, of course, would set up huge vibrations, seismic vibrations in the moon, which would then be picked up by the seismometer that the astronauts in the day previous had carefully deployed. And those seismographic signals would be sent relayed through the central uh, station and the radio link back to the deep space network on Earth the MISFIN network, the Manned Space Flight Network, which is the other network that NASA ran at the time in parallel with the DSN. And those seismographic signals would, in fact, tell scientists, geophysicists, for the first time about the surface and interior geological structure of the moon. And, of course, what they found out, which was really, really, really bizarre and weird and astonishing, is that when... The lunar module, the ascent stage, slammed into the moon at several thousand miles an hour, creating that kinetic energy explosion of, of, uh, of uh, impact. And the waves spread out and reached the Apollo 11 seismometer at the Tranquility Base. The moon rang seismically like a bell for almost two hours. A behavior 
that was totally unexpected, totally unmodeled, totally uncalled for. And to this day, NASA scientists are trying to figure out what that all means. Well, I have a very simple explanation, which I'm going to present right now, because if you look at the imagery in items, you know, three and five and six and seven, all that structure above the moon tied, obviously, because it has to hang on something, to supports into the surface of the moon, like, you know, a huge circus tent with catenary cables, but, you know, pillars holding this stuff up. That's what the towers I discussed last night from Lunar Orbiter apparently are, towers to hold up the grid structure above the moon, like an enormous, incredible moon-spanning circus tent. We've actually seen close-ups of some of the cables, and that's for a future program. The point is that when you trigger a seismic blast on the surface, the vibrations are going to vibrate up those pillars, up those towers, through the cables, so that the entire structure wiggles and jiggles and vibrates back and forth at a variety of frequencies that then ripple back and forth like sound waves in a, uh, in a um, uh, uh, you know, some kind of a echo chamber. And someone's asking me what the music is. I have music playing. I like music behind me when I'm talking sometimes. This is Dark Side of the Moon by Pink Floyd. Very appropriate tonight. We're going to do some cuts from Pink Floyd. Anyway, the point is that those, those seismic vibrations that NASA could not then and has not now successfully modeled, I think are due to the incredible lattice-like vibrations of this extraordinary um, uh, tent-pole architecture strung above the moon, anchored at various points by these towers, and that that structure is what rang like a bell for hours and hours and hours. Two hours was actually the, uh, the total time until it kind of died away. Well, if that model is correct, there should be ways, of course, to test it. And again, uh, there are later missions which had more precise seismographic information. When you have more than one station, you can do cross-correlations. You can figure out from time of flight or time of sound arriving um, what is going on in, in terms of uh, the, the vibrations in the moon and above the moon. And while most people, 99.99%, have thought that the, you know, uh, rang like a bell indicates the moon is hollow, no. It actually was functioning more like a railway trestle or a, a roller coaster trestle, where when the car goes by, if you put your ear against the trestle, you'll hear the vibrations for many, many minutes, maybe up to half an hour after the car has gone by, because it resonates back and forth in all the connections, all the spars, all the cross girders, all the linkages. The you know, and if it's a lossless medium, which glass in a vacuum would be, you know, those those sound waves should propagate um, very nicely for a very long time, which in fact is exactly what occurred. Okay, back to the imagery. So I left you saying I was looking for images that were unJPEGed that would actually show us that we had prisms, prismatic effects. So take a look at number nine. This is um, Harrison Schmidt doing a rake sample at the Apollo 17 landing site. 
And this is an official NASA release. If you click on it, you'll see there's a color chart in front of uh, Schmidt, which shows you the colors. But those are really not the real colors because if you increase the saturation, as I did in number 10, now click on number 10, which is right below number 9, you can see now that the moon's surface is a variety of colors, the faceplate of the astronaut, the gold-plated faceplate, the NASA uh, logo on his sleeve, the color of the uh, rake which he's holding in his hands, and the color chart on the gnomon out in front of him. But in the background on the horizon, you can see that there is a kind of a color band. Where's that coming from? Well, I'll get to that in a second. Go to number 11 now. Click on that. Now, if you look over that distant mountain in the distance on the right, you'll see there's a little sliver of bright light which appears to be colored. Click on number 12. This is an enlargement. Oh, my gosh. There is a prism, a geometric prism stuck, pinioned in the glass at the Apollo 17 site several miles above the moon. Now, it's got to be a pretty large chunk of surviving glass to give us that kind of a prismatic effect on the relatively slow um, uh, film that was in the Hasselblad cameras. But my God, talk about, remember, science is nothing if it's not prediction. The model says if you have glass structures above the moon and they are optically transparent and they're interacting with light like any transparent refractive material, light will pass through them depending upon the wavelength, a different velocity is giving you a dispersion, giving you a rainbow prismatic effect, giving you a light streak, which is red at one end and blue at the other, a spectral diffraction, uh, refraction uh, from the prism of the glass that does the original light splitting, which in fact is what we see in image number 12. Now look at 13. This is now another direction at the Apollo 17 site. This is looking, I believe, uh, south. And lo and behold, look at the inset there. Then click on 14. There's another prism stuck in the glass. Beautiful, gorgeous prisms. I mean, I was so overwhelmed because, again, the hallmark of any decent science is you have a model. You make predictions from the model. And you look to see if, in fact, the predictions come true. It's the only real way that science can validate models is they make predictions and these specific predictions come through. Okay, let's take a look at 15. We must move along here because time is fugiting. 15 is a shot now of um, Gene Cernan, the, the uh, commander of the mission. You can tell that by the red stripes on his sleeves of his spacesuit. Standing next to the flag and Schmidt is looking kind of at a low angle kind of up from his you know, knees up toward the top. And because you're at about 19.5 uh, degrees north on the moon, yes, they landed just about 19.5 north, like 20, 19.5. You can see the Earth in the sky if you kind of bend down, and in those suits it was hard, but um, Schmidt was able to do it, obviously. And he took a picture. That's the one on the left of the composite in number 15. Number right is an enhancement that I've done with a little square around the Earth and a little other tiny square to the upper right of the Earth and then with an arrow that goes down below the flag. And then if you go to 16, you can see what the enlargements are all about. Lo and behold, there is another prism. 
seen in terms of optical width against the Earth. Remember, from the moon, the Earth is about two degrees across because it's, you know, four times bigger than the moon, and the moon is half a degree. So if the Earth is four times bigger, same distance apart, you look back at the Earth, the moon's going to be two degrees in, in optical diameter. Look at the size of that prism, the, uh, the little inset, the little, you know, rectangle uh, against the sky. That's the actual scale of the prism against the sky in which the Earth appears over on the left. That's a humongous prismatic dispersion, indicating that we're talking about serious, significant amount of glass. Okay, going on. Number 17. I noticed that if I enhanced some of these pictures, the best ones, the ones that weren't JPEGed to heck and gone, that I could actually, in looking down sun, in other words, with the sun behind the back of the astronaut, you can see in the number 17 on the left-hand image, at the bottom right of that image, there's a shadow. That is one of the astronauts taking a picture with the Hasselblad on his chest pack, uh, looking toward the lunar module, toward the west. I'm Yeah, toward the west, okay. Um, with the sun rising to about 10 degrees altitude behind him to the east. So what would you get at that set of angles? Well, if the moon is covered by this shimmering, incredibly now tenuous and transparent and almost non-existent, you know, ancient covering of glass in all its myriad geometrical forms, you'd expect it would refract like mad. It would cause trillions of prismatic effects. And those sunlight effects, sunbeams refracted through that glass, would be displayed on the dome opposite in the sky as a projection, just like on Earth, you get a beautiful sunset projected to the east from sun, sunset in the uh, west. Or you get a projection of, at sunrise of the rising sun in the east projected on the, uh, on the uh, clouds or whatever in the sky uh, to, to, the, to the west. So we're seeing kind of like an optical projection effect. When you click on that, you'll see that that has vertical structure and horizontal structure in that left-hand image. It looks eerily, eerily like a typical sunset view with this prismatic dispersion by the Earth's atmosphere of red, green, and blue. You can see that in the vertical structure of the uh, sky above the Golden Gate Bridge. And on the moon, of course, nothing, nothing, nothing like this should be possible. The moon, according to NASA and every other able-bodied scientist on the planet, is basically a vacuum. There's nothing to project on, nothing to reflect light from, nothing to disperse, you know, uh, prismatically different wavelengths of light and have them show up as a prismatic vertical uh, column like we see on Earth. But there... In color, in full glorious color on a Hasselblad frame, is in fact a prismatic sunrise looking toward the west on the moon. Go down to 18. This is from Apollo 15. It's labeled there. You can actually go to the NASA catalog, go to the archive of the headquarters, pull up that frame, do some work in Photoshop, and bingo, you'll see the same thing. I mean, this was astonishing. It was such confirmation of the model because you can't have prisms hanging in empty space against gravity unless, A, there's a piece of glass there or something transparent and refractive to create a prism through dispersion of different wavelengths of light, 
and B, something physical to hold it up so it sits there above the moon to act as a prism. I mean, the model was being incredibly, wonderfully, exquisitely fulfilled according to predictions. And there we see in Apollo 15, again, I don't remember which astronaut took this picture of the lunar module there, and one of the astronauts putting up the science instruments to the uh, north of the lunar module. And looking west, you can see on the horizon the banded colors of the rising sun behind the astronaut being prismatically projected on the parts of the dome opposite the sun and then bouncing back as scattered sunlight. Now, there are several properties in addition to the actual rainbow effects. In number 19, you take two prisms, you put them together, you cross the streams, coming from a very famous movie, in other words, you cross their optical rainbows, and what do you get? You get number 20. Number 20 is what happens when you mix the primary colors from a prism. You get secondary colors. You get off yellows, you get indigos, you get violets, you get all kinds of really astonishing effects, which takes us now, you want to click on Hoagland number six, down right under the, that last picture, look for Hoagland number six, Sunday night, click on that, and that will take you to the next page, which is, um, you know, our next set of images, with, starting with number 21. Number 21 is an artist concept of a spacecraft preceded Apollo called Surveyor. Surveyor was a incredible remote-controlled spacecraft. It had a camera capable of taking color pictures through red, green, and blue filters. It had high-res imagery. It had low-res imagery. At some point, they actually had a surface sampler. It uh, it landed in a kind of a tetrahedral fashion. It had you know three uh, foot pads to land like a like a tetrahedron, and it had solar panels and a high gain antenna. And that artist con concept shows you the basic spacecraft. Well. When the first color image from Surveyor 1, which landed in 1967, was returned to Earth in image 22 in our radio pictures portrayal tonight, the, the surface of the moon, to the much you know irritation of the guys at JPL, wasn't gray and bland and you know looking like the moon they expected. It had color. Now, I've amped the color a little bit. I've increased the saturation so you can easily see it. And you can look at the actual color chart on the Omni antenna sticking out in front of the camera, which is how they calibrated the color. If you look at their you know, version, NASA's version, it's basically a gray image. They've so desaturated it that there basically is almost no color left. Why? Because they didn't want people to see that there was color on the moon. Which, of course, would then raise the next question, well, where the hell is color coming from? In their geological models, color on the moon, of course, has to come from different minerals. You know, there are black minerals, there are green minerals, there are blue minerals. Rocks create all kinds of wonderful colors. You know, if you're a rock hound and you pick up rocks in the desert or you buy them from some scientific uh, supply house, rocks from different chemistries have extraordinary colors. Well, that's not what's going on here. What's going on here is we're seeing actual projection of light, refracted prismatic light, mixing of the rainbows on the surface, creating secondary colors that were photographed 
by the first unmanned spacecraft the U.S. landed on the moon, Surveyor 1. Now, look at number 23. Number 23 is a check on number 22. This is a sequence of a panorama made, as you can see, by taking thousands of little pictures, that's those little squares, and then optically putting them together. Back in those days, they literally would take a picture, make a hard copy, and paste it in a shell, duplicating a 360 panorama. The, I don't have a picture of that you know, available, so you'll just have to imagine what these little concentric bowls look like with all these little pictures pasted in them. And as you can see, this picture was taken uh, towards sunset when the spacecraft was about to go into darkness after it had been there for, you know, almost two weeks. Remember, the lunar day is two weeks long. and We landed just after dawn on the moon on Surveyor 1. Look at the shadow of the Surveyor spacecraft. Why isn't the shadow pitch black? Why is it colored? Why is it blue? Well, the answer is because it's reflecting in the shadow the light from the overarching lunar dome arching overhead that's scattering sunlight and look at that angle like a blue sky, a very, very, very faint blue sky. Totally impossible unless, of course, we're dealing with an anomalous set of architecture above the moon that NASA has never deigned to tell us about because, frankly, when they figured all this out for themselves, they freaked out. Wouldn't you freak out if you thought you were the most superior high-tech civilization on the planet and you get to another planet and you find that what you can do and what you have done and what you're capable of doing is like nothing compared to the godlike technologies and capabilities and ancient structures that someone before you has left upon supposedly your natural satellite. I mean, the ego destruction within NASA of those that were let in on this secret must have been overwhelmingly profound. It must have been shattering. It must have been soul-wrenching. It must have been, oh my God, how do we tell them? And the decision was made across 50 plus years to tell us nothing. Item number 24. This is Alan Bean. He was the uh, lunar module pilot on Apollo 12. Remember, that was the mission that followed uh, uh, the, the first mission, Apollo 11, the land on the moon. Click on, um, click on number 25. Uh, if you do that, you'll read a very interesting statement that he gave to Discover Magazine in, I think, the early 90s. This is now you know, almost 20-some years, 25 years, 24 years, something like that, after the Apollo 11 and Apollo 12 landings. Um, read that statement. What he basically says when Discover asked him, what was, the, uh, what was the, you know, the sky on the moon? What did it look like? What did the sky look like from the moon? And Bean says, well, I'm paraphrasing, it looked like a pair of black patent leather shoes. It looked shiny. And then he wonders kind of out loud to himself more than to the reporter. He said, I asked myself, why would space from the moon look shiny? Now, remember, he's looking through a, a, a helmet. He's looking through a glass helmet, which is gold covered. So it's filtering wavelengths. And he's not able to see because at low light levels, you know, our eyes lose the perception of color. So basically it just 
it, it's it's glinting. It's like a pair of patent leather shoes, black, but there's sparkles, and he's subliminally aware as an artist. Remember, he became the most amazing space artist when he got back to Earth. All of his paintings up until the day he died are of those missions that he and Pete Conrad conducted, and he kept doing things you know, over and over again that really brought home the fact that the moon that he depicted was not the moon we see in the photographs. So um, we've got about four minutes till the uh, uh, top of the hour. Maybe I can get one more in. My favorite image here is now from Apollo 16, number 26. Click on 26. That is now a shot taken looking down sun with the sun rising behind you, the prismatic colors projected on the lunar dome in front of the astronauts, and on both sides of the center line, the midpoint, you can see slanted huge prisms in the sky, immutable prisms hanging above the moon, which, of course, is impossible. If you click on 27, this is a, um, a close-up of one of the prisms, and you can see, in fact, that all of that colored matrix, all that colored uh, noise is really millions of prisms from tinier chunks of glass hanging around this big chunk which is creating the big prism and so if you looked if you look with the right optics if you for instance had dark adapted eyes or you had some kind of light amplification or you took a ccd color image you would see on the moon a stunning array of prisms overhead just arching overhead in a way that is just breathtaking, absolutely breathtaking. And the fact that we're going back to the moon, not only us, but the Chinese are planning human landings, the Japanese, the Russians are helping us with Gateway, and this president wants to send American astronauts back to the moon by 2024 with contemporary 21st century technology. Can you imagine that they will be able to hide the reality of what is on the moon for much longer. They will not. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard Z. Hoagland, and we shall return. Side of midnight.com. 
tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Support the broadcast and don't miss another groundbreaking conversation. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com.